With the failure of Meech Lake in June 1990, you might have expected Canada's leaders to pivot away from the Constitution, but they instead embarked on a new, more publicly inclusive process, which began almost immediately with a remarkable flurry of public consultations on the Constitution. In effect, these consultations form the first part of a three-part process that culminates with the referendum on the Charlottetown Accord, and the task of this episode is to examine this first consultative part of the new process with two key questions in mind. Number one, what did these consultations reveal about the state of the country? And number two, how conducive were they to the achievement not just of a successful constitutional amendment, but of a successful amendment with Quebec's consent? This is Charlottetown, a podcast series that presents the stories and the debates behind Canada's first and still only constitutional referendum. This series is brought to you by the Centre for Constitutional Studies, a hub for research and public education at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. I'm your series host, Dr. Richard Maley, and today's guests are Daniel Turp, Peter Russell, Ian Peach, Jimmy Cameron, and John White. So the failure of Meech Lake is another low point for relations between Quebec and the rest of Canada. And on this front, the key thing to remember is that the rejection of Meech was a rejection of Quebec's minimum constitutional demands, not the most that it wanted, but the very least that it wanted from Canada's constitution. And so after the Meech deadline passes in June 1990, Quebecers are forced to reflect once again on whether their constitutional future now lay inside or outside of Canada? When it comes to the uh, the day after uh, the demise of the Meech Lake Accord, well, there's a, there's a quite solemn moment in the National Assembly of Quebec where uh, Robert Bourassa, you know, makes this uh, very solemn statement in saying that uh, Quebec is free to determine its own destiny. And then Jacques Parizeau, who's the leader of the Parti Québécois and the leader of the official opposition, you know, uh, says to the prime minister, you know, if that's the case, we'll work together and we'll do something and let's uh, do something. Mon premier ministre, my prime minister. And one of the things that uh, Robert Bourassa did is to create this Bélanger Campo Commission. Uh, and it was co-chaired by, by Michel Bélanger, Jean Campeau, two very prominent figures of, of, the, of the Quiet Revolution, of business uh, men, and uh, they chaired the commission. And Monsieur Campeau was chosen by Monsieur Parizeau and, and Monsieur Bélanger by Robert Bourassa. So it was a bit consensual, and it was a 30-member special committee uh, of the of the National Assembly. And that uh, committee toured Quebec, and it, it drafted a report which uh, essentially said, well, Quebec uh, could become independent and we'll further our studies, which we have started on, on independence and what we have to do to become independent. But there was also this suggestion that you, we might want to look also in a Quebec-Canada new partnership, constitutional partnership, and that was uh, showing that there was uh, an, an opening to negotiating uh, further after even the demise of the Beach Lake Agreement. 
That was Professor Daniel Turp talking about the first of two important commissions that were established in Quebec to study its constitutional future. So this commission, the Belanger-Campeau Commission, was a bipartisan body that was created by the Quebec National Assembly. But at the same time, the Quebec Liberal Party, the governing party of Robert Bourassa, established something called the Allaire Committee to draft a constitutional report of its own. When it comes to the Allaire report, the report uh, from Monsieur Allaire, who was a very prominent, very wise person in the Liberal Party, Monsieur Allaire, after the demise of the Michelet Accord, as a member of the Liberal Party who headed this constitutional committee, he, he and Mario Dumont, who was the president of the youth wing of the Liberal Party, they drafted a report that suggested that, that Quebec should have some kind of partnership with Canada, which was very close to sovereignty and independence because it it would have made Quebec a, a, a province with a very, very particular status within Canada, uh, within a, a Canada that would have been very decentralized because the Allard report was claiming for like 23 new powers or areas of jurisdiction where Quebec would have exclusive jurisdiction. Now, for our purposes, the importance of these commissions lies less in these specific recommendations and more in what Peter Russell calls the two-track process that they set in motion. So track one is that in May 1991, after the two commissions have reported their findings, Quebec legally commits itself to holding a new secession referendum by October 28th, 1992. That's track one. Track two, then, by contrast, is concerned with carving out a path for Quebec to actually remain in Canada and involves the creation of a committee to study any new constitutional offers that might come Quebec's way from the federal government and the other provinces. The overall message, then, at this point, is that Quebec will hold a fresh secession vote unless the rest of Canada can come up with a new appealing set of proposed constitutional changes. This puts us in May 1991, which means that there are now 18 months on the clock, 18 months for the other governments of Canada to find a way of persuading Quebec not to leave. The thing is, though, rather than focusing on Quebec like it did during the Meech Lake phase, the federal government has at this point already started expanding the conversation by launching its own cross-country scheme of public consultations on the Constitution. Well, remember in politics now, uh, Brian Mulroney is still the Prime Minister of Canada, and uh, he's a pretty practical guy. But he really he realizes uh, Canada's going to have to get back involved in another round of mega constitutional politics. And the one thing he they, every everyone, I think, kind of recognized this time there'd have to be a popular element to it. Ten men behind closed doors, days were over. But how you do that remains a bit of a mystery for them at that stage. They didn't quite know how to organize that kind of popular participation. But they felt their way uh, along. Uh, one of the first things they did is. Uh, that people will remember, I, maybe, maybe not, they had a citizens' forum uh, led by Keith Spicer, 
both a broadcaster, a language commissioner, a former graduate student of mine, and a remarkable Canadian, to uh, put his hand on the pulse of Canada and uh, see what the citizens really wanted. And uh, it didn't produce very much, but that was our first uh, effort uh, at a more popular democratic way of uh, reaching a constitutional accord. That was Professor Peter Russell. And while he's right that this first federal endeavour, the Citizens Forum, didn't produce very much, it was kind of breathtaking in its scale, allegedly engaging 400,000 Canadians and an extra 300,000 Canadian students. As it turned out, this was just the first of three federal constitutional consultations that took place in the early 90s, and the next one was Baudouin Edwards, a parliamentary committee that had the critically important task of consulting the public on the process that ought to be used to change the constitution. So to get a sense of exactly what this committee did, we talked to Mr Ian Peach, who represented the federal NDP on Baudouin Edwards. It was a cross-country tour. Right. It was a big enough enterprise that we went across the country over the course of the spring, I guess, of 1991. held public hearings in all of the capital cities and invited sort of experts as well as inviting members of the public to make submissions and, and appear on the, on the witness list. Very traditional in many ways but informative stuff. We're going to hear more from Mr. Peach as the episode goes on, but we're also going to hear from Professor Jamie Cameron, who was involved in a number of the federal government's consultations, including Baudouin Edwards, as an expert witness. I was invited to appear before the committee as a witness, and I can say that the evidence I gave or the testimony I gave and the questions I was asked all had to do with what we could or should do to make a process of amendment uh, successful. And at the time, I was talking about two different variables because it was it was between Meach and Charlottetown. So in particular, I was sort of explaining to the committee that if you want constitutional reform to be effective to the extent you have a very inclusive and participatory process, you might not be as likely to achieve effective reform because a more inclusive, a more democratic, a more participatory process is a bit more unwieldy. And, you know, in some circumstances would be less able to come to fruition in the form of a constitutional amendment that could be successful. On the other hand, um, you might have an, uh, an approach to constitutional reform that is effective in the sense of involving a high level of negotiation that results in an agreement that can be that can be approved and so on but it might not be legitimate if it doesn't have the buy-in uh, from the democratic community which essentially uh, was the problem with Meech Lake I mean it was um, until it failed it looked like a very high a very effective approach to constitutional amendment but it it lacked legitimacy in a number of quarters and was not successful as a way of achieving constitutional reform at that point in Canada's history. 
This is such a great summary of the really delicate balance that the government needed to strike if it was going to embark on a new constitutional reform process. So on the one hand, a more inclusive process would be a risk for the government, because the more people you involve, well, the higher the potential for conflict and dissensus and ultimately for failure. On the other hand though, after the backlash against Meech and after the failure of Meech, there was no going back to the days of 11 white men negotiating in private, and the key concern of Baudouin Edwards was accordingly with how to fashion a more inclusive, more open, more transparent process. So what were some of the key reforms that the committee considered to address this concern? Certainly indigenous participation participation of advocacy groups for gender equality because the quote-unquote women's movement had accomplished so much in 1981 through the parliamentary committee looking into and ultimately making some important revisions to the what became the constitution act in 1982 that they naturally they and other other groups that felt a sense of ownership over the new constitution wanted that level of input again that was shared both by those seeking gender equality and by indigenous communities more generally there was a there was a sense of there was a desire for open process in lots of cases in particularly in western canada that came down to referenda so a referendum, of course, uh, ends up being the most important part of the new process because it's the referendum that eventually kills the Charlottetown Accord in October 1992. The thing is, though, at this early formative point in the process, the use of a referendum wasn't inevitable and it wasn't the only democratising mechanism that Baudouin Edwards considered. There was also discussion around the idea of constituent assemblies. The NDP members, we and who I worked for and I, liked the idea of a constituent assembly because my argument was always referenda allow you to say yes or no, but you need to have something at the developmental, fa developmental phase if you want a process that allows you to say, well, maybe, but and debate it out to get to a conclusion, which is something a referendum can't do. So we played with different models of constituent assembly to try to, to try to construct a dialogue process that would be legitimate and would allow you know, those groups who felt an affinity for the new constitution to have voice again. As Mr. Peach points out, the NDP members of the committee were very serious about the use of a constituent assembly, and this preference is going to become quite significant a little later in the story. Before we get there though, you might be wondering at this point, very reasonably, what actually is a constituent assembly? A constituent assembly at its purest is a selection of citizens for the particular purpose of holding a dialogue about a, a difficult political issue. So it's not, it's not MPs or MLAs who are elected to represent constituents for some period of years, but a group of people brought together for a special purpose. 
to engage in dialogue. And, you know, there are lots of details within that. I, I ran across um, the memos I had done uh, for, our, for our MPs on Bowdoin Edwards of different models and do questions of, do you include legislators or not? Or is it entirely separate? Does it need to be gender balanced? Does it need to reflect the diversity of the population? I mean, yes is, is a good answer to that stuff so that it is reasonably representative. I mean, some forms of constituent assembly have been called deliberative polls because you, you try to construct the group in a way, in the same way to ensure representativeness that you construct polls, uh, but you bring them together so they can engage in dialogue as opposed to merely polling them one person at a time. In the end, Baudouin Edwards didn't recommend a constituent assembly, and so the NDP put out its own report, a minority report, to advocate for the assembly option. Now, as I mentioned already, the NDP's preference on this is going to become relevant a bit later in the story, but for the moment, suffice it to say that the official Baudouin Edwards report made three key recommendations that were eventually adopted by the government. So number one was a direct rule for the Northern Territories, number two was a direct rule for Indigenous groups, and number three was the use of a consultative national referendum. The Bowdoin Edwards Committee published these recommendations in June 1991, and a few months on, in September, the federal government published its own set of substantive constitutional proposals in a booklet titled Shaping Canada's Future Together. This then spawned a new third round of federal consultations in the form of the Castingay-Doby Committee, and the idea with this committee was that it would consult the public on the Shaping Canada's Future booklet, basically asking Canadians what they thought of the substantive changes that the government was pitching. And once again, Ian Peach was on staff. So the plan was to have a very extensive process uh, as the committee would go to different provinces. They would have hearings in the capital city as a full committee but then they would break up into subgroups and the subgroups would spread out across the province to different smaller centers to hear, to hear from locals, um, essentially to have, to have kind of, kind of mini dialogue processes in the, in the local places. Uh, first, first place we went was PEI. PEI started to reveal the mess that was about to happen because the committee went to PEI really quickly and didn't give anybody sufficient advance notice to get organized to make make presentations to the committee. Well, this proved to be just the foreshadowing of what was to come in Manitoba. Now, I hate to ask such an obvious question, but let's ask the obvious question. What was it that happened in Manitoba? The first day when the committee breaks up into subgroups and goes off to various spots, Claude Castingay and Lauren Nystrom go down, I believe, into the southwestern part of the province with a few other people. And um, when they arrive, they discover that other than the media, 
the uh, broadcast staff, the clerks and themselves, there's actually no one to talk to. So they get, this blows up, they come back and they go, what gives? And then the various layers of, of problems started to come, come up. Now, we don't need to go into detail about what these various problems were, because the important point for our purposes is that the Liberals and the NDP laid the blame squarely with the committee's Conservative co-chair, Dorothy Doby. And so when the committee returned to Ottawa after its failed Manitoba trip, the Liberals and the NDP called for Doby's resignation, which left the Conservatives scrambling a bit to try and keep the committee together and keep Doby in post. So the question was, what could the Conservatives offer their opponents that would convince them to accept Doby's continuation as co-chair? And the answer, in effect, to bring us all the way back to Baudouin Edwards, was constituent assemblies. At the risk of having the whole thing fall apart in an epic embarrassment to the government, Joe Clark made an offer to Audrey McLaughlin, the NDP leader, that reflected back on the NDP's minority report in Bobby Edwards about holding a constituent assembly and said, okay, we're taking some, essentially what he said was we're taking some of the power away from the parliamentary committee and we're, try, we're going to, in parallel, create a more inclusive process called the Renewal of Canada Conferences. The Renewal of Canada Conferences were really a pretty big deal and, as Mr Peace just said, they were kind of like many constituent assemblies, which was of course exactly what the NDP had lobbied for so hard during the Baudouin-Edwards phase. So these conferences were extremely important and they kept the committee together. But how exactly did they work and what exactly did they do? Well, I'm, I'm actually reading from the introduction of the Renewal of Canada conference compendium of reports, which I happen to find in my office. And it's being described here as an initiative that was coast to coast in Canada and as part of an, quote, a most extraordinary exercise in nation building through a series of constitutional conferences. Um, and so each conference was asked to discuss changes in the way Canada is governed and in particular the implications of a, a set of 28 proposals for constitutional change that the government of Canada had put forward. It was called uh, Shaping Canada's Future Together. The structure of it was that there were five conferences in all. And the first one is was in Halifax in Nova Scotia, and it focused on the division of powers. Then it shifted to Calgary, Alberta, and uh, questions of institutional reform. The third venue was Montreal, Quebec, and uh, the subject of that Renewal of Canada conference was Economic Union. Then in Toronto in February, there was Identity, Rights and Values. And then there was a concluding conference in Vancouver in mid-February 1992. But uh, the idea of the Renewal of Canada conferences was to stage these public discussions across the country and to choose the key subjects of constitutional reform that the political leadership wanted to engage the public on. 
Of course, as with any purportedly democratic representative body, the big question here is how do you make it meaningfully or adequately representative of the general public? And on this front, the Renewal of Canada conferences had what Ian Peach describes as a 25% rule. 25% of each Renewal of Canada, of the participants in each Renewal of Canada conference were unaffiliated Canadians. People were asked to submit their names if they were interested in participating in a conference and their, their names were picked from a hat, essentially. What fascinated me and fascinates me to this day is how influential those people were. I, tend, I think we have been talking constitution for five years, or nigh under five years by this point. So all the organized groups that had anything to say about the Constitution had already said it probably several times, and everybody knew what they thought. But we go to these Renewal of Canada conferences, and there would be all these people who, who had never had a, had a voice before. So nobody knew what they were going to say. And when they spoke, everybody was absolutely fascinated by what they were going to say. They had real influence on the course of the conferences, Baudouin Doby, and ultimately Charlottetown. I mean, the, big, the big example is the Montreal Conference on the Economic Union. Well, it was supposed to be a discussion of how to craft a stronger economic union by, through constitutional amendments, but the Ontario government had uh, by that uh, under Bob Ray had by that time already uh, floated the idea of a social union, a social covenant, and that became the topic of the Economic Union Conference. So the Economic Union Conference became a social union conference because the unaffiliated Canadians said, "I want to talk about this thing. This is really interesting to me. The Economic Union—that's some elitist." garbage yeah whatever i want to talk about this thing and the agenda got totally turned around into a social union agenda so this social union agenda that was championed by the ontario ndp not only ends up becoming part of the national agenda but actually ends up in the charlottetown accord as well and so there's a real argument to be made here that these Renewal of Canada conferences, and in particular the so-called unaffiliated Canadians who spoke at them, had a serious, concrete impact on the way the Charlottetown process played out, and more importantly, on what that process actually produced. The thing is, though, as Peter Russell points out, these moments of apparent efficacy didn't mean that the conferences, and indeed the federal consultations more generally, were necessarily the most constructive way, in the end, of resolving Canada's constitutional problems. I remember um, going to, I always use the example of church basements, where there were public meetings, and, and people, ordinary people, would come up with a microphone uh, and they would just rant. They were extraordinarily emotional about what what they had to have uh, and what wasn't there about their identity. Uh, and you could just hear listening to them. Uh, if they all had the same rant from Halifax to uh, Nunavut over to uh, uh, Vancouver Island, 
Well, we might have a chance, but there are. Uh, they use this phrase, spilling their guts out. I heard that phrase so many times. I'm spilling my guts out. And the, when they spilled them out on the floor, all the guts in the different town halls and so on, they all look very different. <laughs> you, you can't make much of a constitutional cord out of guts that are <laughs> at loggerheads with one another in conflict. You can't make a constitutional accord out of guts is uh, one of my favourite lines in this series. The implication being that the uh, the federal government had maybe overcorrected after the failure of Meech by making a new process that was just a bit too expansive and, and unwieldy. And in this regard, the big problem was that by the time the consultations ended, they really hadn't given Canada's leaders clear guidance on what to do next. I mean, they did show strong public support for initiatives like the Social Covenant, but for the most part, they just exposed divisions, which meant that the heavy lifting of resolution and compromise would still need to be done Meech Lake style at the negotiating table, which we'll talk about in the next episode. To arguably make matters even more difficult though, the expansiveness of the consultations had actually complicated the task that negotiators would now face, because the Meech Lake problem of how to accommodate Quebec had now been supplemented with the problem of how to accommodate the full diversity of Canadian perspectives on the Constitution. And once again, even if this wasn't a bad thing in itself, it did pose a major challenge for a process that was still ostensibly about getting Quebec's signature on the Constitution, and even more urgently, about avoiding Quebec's new secession vote in October 92. Now to be clear, none of this is meant to detract from the, I think, really remarkable democratic moment that Canada experiences with initiatives like Baudouin Edwards and Renewal of Canada. But the point is that these really steep challenges that are already embedded in phase one of the new process actually give us an early warning sign of the fate that eventually befalls the Charlottetown Accord. And to provide a much more insightful, nuanced version of this thought, I want to hand over now to Professor John White to close out the episode. Ultimately, a constitutional negotiation in an established constitutional state is, is responsive to specific, deeply felt needs. And it is not brainstorming. And I think the Ottawa consultations between Meech and Charlottetown were, they were brainstorming by design and brainstorming by effect by letting a lot of people in who didn't have any political restraints. They were just thinking. And uh, I don't think that you can actually uh, change a nation's constitution like that. <laughs> I, I think it's a remedial uh, task. Constitution constitu reform is a remedial process not an inventive process and you know i mean there are revolutions and and good good thing too lots of nations need them uh, but canada didn't it needed to correct its problems mm -hmm.